We finished off with Abraha, who's now taken over the land of Yemen. He's established Christianity, but a very harsh Christianity religion. They went there and they raped and they pillaged and they killed and they destroyed everyone that was not part of their way of life. And now this man, Abraha, wants to build a massive big church in Yemen because he knows that people go to this land of Makkah to do the uh, to do the Tawaf. And he wants to take the people away because he knows that they're idol worshippers there and he wants to bring people into Christianity. So I've stopped the story there with Abraha. Now we're going to go all the way back, a few hundred years now, and we're going to go back from Hazrat Ismail and downwards. We talked about Ismail who came with his mother. The Jurum tribe that came from Yemen joined them. Ismail married into the Jurum tribe. Then he married again, right, with another woman. Then he had children. Then the descendants of Ismail worshipped Allah, the one God. Ibrahim Islam came to meet his son. They built the Kaaba and they showed them all the pilgrimage, all the activities of doing the Hajj going to Mina, going to Muzdalifah, going to Arafah, they established this. So over the course of the years, all these people were worshipping Allah. That was a monotheistic belief. And the other side, we talked about Ibrahim when he left Ismail and went to Sarah, he had Isaac. And from Isaac came all the other prophets. And those prophets were the people of Bani Israel. Right? The Quran mentions the word Bani Israel. Bani means the people of Israel. And Israel isn't the land that we're talking about. Israel is the nickname of our prophet Yaqub, yeah, Jacob. Jacob's nickname was Israel. So everyone that came under him is called Bani Israel. And all the prophets that came to teach those nations, which are large amounts of nations, and thousands of prophets came in that region to these people, they effectively became the Jews and the Christians. So Allah was almost like saying, right, I'm going to give you a chance. Follow the truth, follow the haq. I've sent you these prophets, I've sent you these messengers. And they ignored. Just like we ignore. We are effectively the chosen people. Allah says if you take the shahada, you're guaranteed paradise. Now, in 2023, what is the state of the Muslims? What is the state of the Muslims? Every day we hear, oh, they're killing someone, they're taking their land in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, in, in you know, such and such land. You know, they've had a family feud. We don't judge anything by Islam. So if we, who are the chosen people, can fall off the track, you can imagine how they went off it. So when they had given up, Isa bin Maryam was the last of their prophets, was the last of the prophets of the Bani Israel. And Allah said, I've had enough of you. Because even when he was born, you tried to kill him. You didn't even give my prophet, my messenger, a chance to spread the message you wanted to kill him. We're done. And that's why the Dua Ibrahim when he had left Ismail there and he made the dua, I said, Ya Allah, from this son of mine, let there come a man where he will, ex where he will explain the kitab, meaning the, the law of Allah, and people will follow him. And that is why the Jews and the Christians have a big issue because they know that in their scriptures there was a talk about another prophet. Little did they know that he came from the lineage of Ismail and not Ishaq. And they took that on the premise of racism because he was an Arab and it was a big problem for them.
So now when you look at the world today and you see all these arguments and discussions and debate between the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims, we are all from one family, but why do we differ? And that is simply because their negligence and their lack of ability to accept Muhammad as a prophet. And Muhammad warned this. And that's why if you look at the two, uh, the, the two first chapters of the Quran, Surah Al-Baqarah, Surah Imran, you will see Allah cursing the Bani Israel. Constantly, look how them ridiculous. We gave them the opportunity and they didn't. But that lesson of Bani Israel in the first two is a lesson for us. Because even though he's cursing them, he's almost saying, you're becoming the same. I send you the Prophet. And what did you do? You turned against him. And if you read Surah Al-Furqan, some of the verses in there, beautiful verses, talk about the people will stand on the day of judgment biting into their knuckles. They'll be in so much fear, psychologically, their adrenaline will be rushing so much, they'll be biting out nervous and not knowing they've eaten into their knuckles. And they'll say, why are you worried? And they said, oh, we only wished, now we know, we only wish we followed the path of our Prophet. And the Prophet will stand on that day for two reasons. Once in defense of the Muslims and the second as a prosecution against you. Because Allah will say to Muhammad what happened with him? And he'll say, I did my job. I sent them the message, but they did not follow me. And the man who's biting into his knuckle, which is you and me, we're going to turn and say, but it wasn't me. It was this friend, Abdullah. He used to come here and take me away. I wanted to go to the masjid, but he took me to the clubs. I wanted to go see my parents, but he told me to smoke weed with him. I wanted to do this, but we decided to go to a shisha bar instead. He was the one. And then the third person comes in. Then they both turn around and look at Shaitan and they'll say, Shaitan was the one. Shaitan said, why are you blaming me for? That's my job. And so Hamza becomes the prosecutor. So you see that it's very important why we do the seed and why we le learn about these lessons because Bani Israel is about, it's a reflection. They're a mirror reflection of us. And Allah is saying, you still have an opportunity. You still have an opportunity to turn. And we're going in that direction. So when Ismail now came, obviously was in Makkah, then he married to the Jurum tribe, then another tribe came in called the Khuzar tribe. And they basically removed the Jurum tribe. Now, if you remember very clearly, when the Khuzar tribe came in and they removed this tribe called Jurum, Jurum tribe, the leader, buried the water of Zamzam and some gold and everything. And since then, they were never able to find it. Now, when the Khuzar tribe came into power, all these hundreds of years, they believed in one God. The word Christian exists, but the descendants of Ismail did not want to be involved in these wars. When the Khuzar tribe came in, that's when they introduced the idols into Makkah. They brought it in. And then you have Ismail and Nila, the two, the, the, the two idols that wanted to desecrate the, the, the Kaaba by meeting there to commit zina. You know, like the way that youngsters are today. They just want to rebel against anything. Your parents tell them to pray, they don't pray. You tell them to behave, they don't behave. They go behind their backs and they commit haram. That's the same thing that was happening there. They didn't like the rules upon them. They wanted the freedom. They wanted to be rebellious. They wanted to be do things the way they wanted to do. And Allah Ta'ala put a warning there, turned them into stone. So when they were now put into that situation, right? When they were now put into that situation, now all the idols got introduced into this area and people started to adopt it. And the saddest thing of all of this, the first people who accepted these idols when they got introduced 
were the children of Ismail. They were the first ones that started introducing it. Now what happens is, as Khuzar now come into power, I'm going to start with a story by a man by the name of Khuzay. Khuzay is from the descendants of Ismail. And by this time, the Quraysh have been, or the descendants of Ismail have been kicked out, right? So Khuzay, what he does, this man, he marries the daughter of the leader of the Khuzar of Makkah. Once he marries her, he gets his position to Makkah. The leader, Hulayl his name is, of the Khuzar tribe, knows that he's got the full control of Kaaba and everything else. And you've got the pilgrimages that are coming. It's a very powerful institution. It's a very powerful status to have when you're in charge of the pilgrims that are coming in. And remember, during this time, the pilgrims are paying for everything, but they're making money out of them, right? Remember, they used to tax people who used to go from the south and pass Makkah through their roads. They used to tax them. So Hussein wanted to take the control back for his family. So there's different narrations and different stories about what they think happened. In general, the Hulayl, the leader of the Khuzar tribe, knew that the power needed to go to someone. He had a daughter, Hubba, who married Hussein. So he gave the power to his daughter. Hubba, the daughter, then instilled a delegate to look after all of the affairs. So he effectively became like the second in command of Makkah. Hussein was a very clever man. And what he had done, he got this delegate drunk and over a, a skin of wine and a riding animal, he bought the power off him. And the Khuzar tribe knew that once the deal is done, now Khuzay has the control of Makkah. Now they didn't like this. So the Khuzar tribe then responded back to having warfare. They wanted to kill him. So what Khuzay done is that he called his brothers. Because remember, the descendants of Ismail were kicked out of Makkah and they lived out in the outskirts because the Khuzar tribe took full control of Makkah. So he called his brothers back and said, bring all the neighboring families, tribes, yeah, our relatives, and they had a massive big war in Makkah. So there was bloodshed, there was everything that went on. Eventually, what happened was they tried to come to a treaty because there was too much death. So they put an arbiter into place. And the arbiter turned around and said, okay, this is, this is the deal we're going to do. Jose, you will take now control of all of Makkah. That was the power he wanted. But everyone that you've killed from the Khuzar tribe, you have to pay the blood money. And that's what you're going to do. So... He now takes full control over the land of Makkah and he kicks out the Khuzar tribe completely. And what he went and done is that he started inviting all of his family back again, which was the, effectively the, the family and the descendants of Ismail who were going to be effectively the Quraysh. And he divided the land of Makkah into different portions and he put the various families in those regions. So now, when we get to the time of Muhammad Sallam, you will see where each of the families were positioned, right? Where the Banu Hashim lived, where the Banu Adi lived, where the uh, Banu Mukhzam lived, etc. You will see all the various tribes and where their positions were, okay? So he had controlled it and then they lived in the higher parts of Makkah, in the lower parts of Makkah, but he had completely full control over it. The other thing that is very important to remember, there were four elements of control, political control that Khuzai had implemented in Makkah, okay, which you'll all know about. One is the Hijabah, one is called the Rifada, one is called the Sakaya, and these were basically the way he divided the political control. The main reason why Makkah is there is to allow pilgrims to come to do their Hajj. 
or to do their Umrah, even though this is now completely polluted with the idol worshipping. So the control of the pilgrims and providing with food and water while they pay for it, they want to control of that. The second one was the control of the banners, what they called is war, the control of the army. The next thing that he also established was the third one, which was the control of the assembly. So he created a parliamentary city called Anadwa. So Anadwa was basically opposite the Kaaba. This is the place where all the tribal leaders used to come and they used to make the decision. And this is important to understand because when they were turned against Muhammad and they wanted to kill Muhammad they wanted to go war to Muhammad they used to make this decision in the parliament here. So this is called the Anadwa. So he established this. So it was important because each one of these sections of the political system of Makkah used to be controlled by certain people. So Jose controlled all of it. Okay, now eventually it came to a point <coughs> that Jose becomes very old and Jose has now four children. One is Abdul Dar, the other one is Abdul Manaf, one is Abdul Sham and the other one is Abd. Now, Abdul Dar was his oldest son. So what Jose had done was the other four children he had, the younger ones, over a period of time, they became noblemen. they done very well. They became very wealthy and established. So had a great reputation. Abdul Dar, his oldest son, because he was the oldest and was probably helping, you know how you always get the oldest one who always helps out with the father's business, whatever. The other ones get to educate themselves and so forth. He felt bad that my oldest son didn't get anything. So he handed over all of the control of Makkah the Ronadwa, the Sakaya, you know, the Rufaya, all of these to the one son. So he has effectively the political control. That's a very powerful position to have. The other four brothers didn't have an issue with that. They loved their brother. They had their own control. They had their own businesses. They were doing very well. So there was no issue. So they ran off. They ran the system like this. Kosei eventually died. And then these four brothers were there. Then what happened was, so Abdul Manaf is Qusay's son. Abdul Dar is not here, okay, because the story goes through this lineage now. So Abdul Manaf now has children. And one of those children is a man by the name of Hashim. His actual name was Amr, okay, Hashim. Okay, so just remember this now. So Abdul Manaf, he has many children. Abdul Manaf's children, when Hashim came into when they when they were all growing up, they wanted the rights of Makkah. And they kicked up a massive big argument with their family members. And they said, look, our grandfather gave all of these elements of control of Makkah to Abdul Dar because he pitied him. But actually, the rights should come to all of the sons. It belongs to each and every one of us. So what happened is under Qusay, this is where the Quraysh now began. So the Quraysh divided themselves into two camps. You had some of the families that became under Abdul Dar, and all the other brothers, yeah, their families, so Abdul Sham, Abdul uh, Abd, yeah, they went under the, let's say the um, the camp of Abdul Manaf. Okay, so you had effectively two tribes, the Abdul Dar and Abdul Manaf. So the two brothers. So the other three brothers came under Abdul Banaf, and then you have the Abdul Dar. 
under these particular tribes, you'll find all the families that come in. Now, these tribes that came and supported them are all associated, when we go into the story of the Prophet are all associated with Abu Sufyan. They're the families of people like Umar al-Khattab, the families of Abu Bakr Sadiq, etc, etc. So they're all part of these families. Okay? So what happened was, Hashim was one of the ringleaders. And Hashim said, the right should come to us and we should divide this. So he created a pact. They went to the Kaaba and they had a bowl of perfume. They put their hands in there and then they touched the Kaaba. And that was the treaty of the perfume, they call it, where they agreed that they were not going to give up until they got their rights. Eventually, the families came to an agreement and the Abdul Manaf, the oldest, the, the, the oldest son, his children kept control over three parts of it. And then the control of feeding the pilgrim and giving them water went to the control of Hashem. Okay, so the th if you, you take the five or the four, you take one of those and take the other three. Three stay with Abdul Manaf's family, which was effectively Abu Sufyan and Sko. If you don't know them, don't worry about it. And then the others went to the Hashem family. Now, this is very important to understand. Hashem, yeah, is the beginning of the family of the Prophet Muhammad That's why we refer to Muhammad that he and his Abu Talib, his Hazrat Ali, all of these are from the Banu Hashim. Yeah, Banu means the people or the children of Hashim. Now, story says, right, this is, a, this is interesting, right? So Hashim was twins with Abdul Sham. So when they were born, they were born, they were born conjointed. So to the extent, and this is what the history says, right? So they say that his Hashim's leg or his toe was in the forehead when they were born. It was in the forehead, jointed into the forehead of his twin brother. So the father, when they were born, took the sword and separated them. He did their own operation. And people used to say because of this and splitting them and blood was spilled, they took it as an omen that these two families are going to start their warfare. And it did, right? Because from this family came Abu Sufyan, came all the people who rejected Muhammad right? So it's interesting to know this. Hashim, on the other hand now, was a very smart, very clever man and a very giving person. A couple of pointers about Hashim that you need to understand what he introduced. So one thing about Hashim was that... It's interesting to know that in the time of polytheists and idol worshippers, he was actually classified as a Hanif. He actually followed only the religion of Ibrahim Islam. He never believed in the idol worshippers. Now, whether this is true or not, some historians say that he's probably only the one in the lineage of Muhammad Sallam. The other thing about Hashem that he had done was the land of Makkah went through a period of uh, poverty or famine. And as a result of that, what Hashim went and done is that he travelled out and he got bread made from out to town, loaves of bread. And he brought it back to Makkah because there was no food and there was only very few camels. That if you, obviously, if you go through a famine, cattle can't eat, cattle, cattle start to die. So what he done, he brought the bread back and he basically made a bowl. He slaughtered some of the camels, took the meat, boiled it, made a soup out of it, took the bread and crushed the bread into the soup. And then he fed people, so people could survive off this for a very long time. And because he crushed it, that's why the name Hashem, because Hashem means crusher, right? But 
the historians take it the wrong way. They think he's a crusher because he was an oppressor, but he wasn't. He, the, the term crusher came from because he used to crush the bread and people used to eat from that. And people used to remember this. And Hashem was such a generous person that he would never eat alone. If he was sitting alone, he would not eat. He would call, look for someone so they can sit and eat with him. Okay? So it's important to understand some of these characters because these, this is all building up to the lineage of the, uh, or, or the beginning of Mufsa Salam. But the reason why I want to mention some of these stories is because of the introduction of some of the things that they brought in that you will find that exist today and also at the time of Hamza Salam. So we talked about the political system, the, 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 the control of the pilgrims, providing with food and water, the the control of the warfare, the banners, etc. And this is important. The other thing that Hashem had also introduced, and remember, how did Makkah become wealthy and powerful? Their biggest economy driver was their trade. And they in the winter, they used to go to Yemen, right? And there's an ayat of Quran, yeah, Quraysh, right? So if you read this ayat of Quran, it says, and then in the winter, they used to go to Yemen to trade, and they used to buy from there. And then in the summer, they used to go to Syria, Al-Sham, Busra, this area where the Silk Road used to be. And they used to sell, so they swap, and they made tons of money. And because they used to pass these goods back, they were almost like, Romans were happy because they had a trade route. Someone was providing the services or bringing stuff from Yemen. Yemen uh, kings were happy because they were providing stuff from Syria. And as a result of that, their economy boomed. So this is where the economy of Makkah ripened. And why this is important? Because this is where Muhammad Sallam, when, the, when they used to take their trade, this Muhammad used to be a tradesman and he used to take these caravans to the north to the south, this period of time. And then if you remember the Battle of Badr, what caravan did they raid? The caravan that was going to Al-Sham, uh, that Abu Sufyan was taking. So understand this is when the introduction was done, okay? So he was the one that introduced the trade and boosted up the economy. And when your economy boosts, what happens? Everyone comes to the city. And when people start coming to the city, Loads of people, you become the center. It's like London. Now, if I wanted to spread Islam, and I was, let's say, the first person in the UK, would I pick a small town somewhere near Bradford to start my dawah if I wanted to reach out to the masses? No. I'd go into London, where all the Europeans are coming, all the people from the Far East are coming, and they will get to hear what I say, even if it's in a few words, and they go away with that. So here you see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is preparing everything for Muhammad Sallam. Let Makkah be the core city. Because the first thing that Allah wants to fix is the family of the Prophet, then the Arabs, and then grow it from there. So we learn a very, very clear lesson from this, right? So now we get a little bit interesting, right? Now Hashem has a son by the name of Abdul Matalib, okay? This is where the fun bit starts now. All right, so we talked about Husay, right? Then we talked about uh, Abdul Manaf, and now we talked about Hashem. Hashem now has several children, and one of them is Sheba. And he's called Sheba because when he was born, he was born with a white streak of hair, and Sheba means white or old man, right? That's the references. So he's now born. But Hashem, who's 
tradesperson was going traveling back and forward died and he died fairly young he was only in his 20s when he passed away and he died apparently before Sheba was born the mother was from Yathrib you know what Yathrib is we can't call it Yathrib now but the, we refer to Yathrib from a historical perspective it is Medina Yathrib was the name that the Jews gave to Medina that's why when Muhammad took over Medina he changed the name from Yathrib to Medina. He said, we cannot call it Yathrib because it's Tagut, because it's associated with the Jews. So she had family that was in Medina. So she took Sheba to Medina or Yathrib and she brought up her son there. Now, Sheba, who, aka Abdul Matalib, was now eight years old in Medina, in Yathrib. Hashim has passed away. His brother, Mutalib, decides... I need to take responsibility for this boy because in those days it's like the boys if they don't have fathers they should go to their uncles because this is a very rough era and people boys need to be trained into men mothers can't do it so his brother Botalib goes to and never met he's never seen his uh, nephew before travels to Medina meets the mother and convinces the mother and says give me Sheba let me take him she says no he's my son he said, he's not going to survive in this society. Let me take him. Let me show him the city. Let me train him so he can do sword fighting, his language, his trades, everything. We can do, I can, let me do it. So the family were against it. But eventually the arguments that he put forward convinced the mother. So the mother said, no problem, you take him. So when Mutalib took Sheba into Makkah and the people never seen Sheba before because he wasn't, born right by the time Hashem died and he didn't even was born in Makkah so they didn't know who the kid was when Mutalib was riding the camel into Makkah and people know who Mutalib is because they're a very famous family the Bono Hashem they were like oh he must have bought a slave because in those days you can buy eight-year-old slaves you can buy four-year-old slaves that was there was it was lawless it was not unusual so when they saw him they said that must be Abdul Mutalib because Abdul means what? The slave. The slave of Mutalib. And that's why he got his name as Abdul Mutalib. So now, Hashim has passed away. Mutalib is now the controller and the owner of the Banu Hashim. He's the leader. Eventually, at one point now, what happens is Mutalib passes away. Abdul Mutalib now grows up. And he's now given the responsibility and the control of the tribe of Banu Hashim. And Banu Hashim is one of the most powerful tribes in Makkah. Okay? And don't forget, they have the control of providing the most sacred, the number of privileged control of providing food and water. Right? And don't forget, there is no Zamzam. Right? Zamzam, right? So when you find water, when you go to Hajjanao, water is your Zamzam. There's no water. They haven't found it for 300 years. Yeah, they try desperately. So water, they dig their own wells elsewhere, but they will provide the food. Okay. What's interesting is before Hashem died, what he also instilled was this custom. Before, if you were to travel into Makkah Medina, you would have to pay for your own food and your own water. If you know now, if you go to Makkah, you go to so you go to Hajj or Umrah. When you go to Mina, the food is provided to you by the government. That food that you get in Mina is not paid by anyone. It's free. Guess where that habit was instilled? All the way by Hashem. He was the one that instilled this. And he said to the people of Quraysh, this when he was in Mina, he said to the people of Quraysh, you are the inhabitants yeah, of Makkah. 
and the people that come to Makkah are the visitors of Allah. So therefore take the responsibility and provide the food and the water to these people. So there he would raise the money from the Quraysh. So the Quraysh took it upon themselves in Makkah to provide the food to the outsiders. Then eventually when Muhammad came into power and Islam was established, that then went to the state. So now the Islamic State would now provide that food and shelter. So if the Islamic State went from Saudi to Turkey, for example, the Turkish government would ensure that everyone went to Hajj and Umrah would be provided this food, which is the right thing. So that's where it got instilled. It's important to understand where a lot of these rules came from. So no one is clear. Because when I say, where did Hajj come from? It came from Muhammad No, it didn't. It came 2,000 years before him. So you're clear where a lot of these rulings come from. And that's why when you have these debates with the Jews and Christians regarding Hajj, Hajj doesn't come from our Prophet, doesn't even come from Islam technically, or the Islam we're talking about. It actually comes from your religion, right? Which they deny. Now, Shayba is now called Abdul Muttalib. And Abdul Muttalib is now the controller, right, of providing this food, right? This is now the, the, one of the best stories that start to come in. So, Abdul Muttalib, one night, he goes to sleep and he has a dream. And in that dream, somebody approaches him. Now, he's sleeping somewhere near the Kaaba. And he has his dream and somebody approaches him in his dream and said to him, Dig Taiba. And in his dream, he says, what is Taiba? Now, Taiba means pure. And the man disappears. The next night, he goes to sleep. And the man comes back into his dream again. The, the man is actually the angel. And says to him, dig al-bara. He says, what is bara? Bara means goodness. Right? But he's not asking what the word means. He's saying, Where, what do you mean bara? What is it? What, what is it? Is it trees? Is it mountain? What is it? And then the angel disappears. The third night, he has a dream again. And he says, dig maduna. Yeah? Which also means the same thing. Now, the fourth night, because now he's querying with amongst his grave, they said, if there's a true dream, right, it will be from God. And if it's not, it's from Satan, right? You won't, it won't come back again. So now on the last night, the, the angel comes to see him and he says to him, dig Zamzam. And he says, what is Zamzam? He says, Zamzam will never dry out. It is the water that feeds the grand pilgrim. And you will find it outside the Kaaba between the, in his very specific in his dream, the angel says, between the dung and the blood, which means tomorrow you go look for it, between the dung and the blood, and you will find a crow's nest with a white leg very close to an ant's nest. He's giving the very specific location. He gets up in the morning, he grabs his son, Harith. It's only one son he's got. Harith is young now. Takes the axe goes outside the Kaaba and starts digging. Now the rest of the Quraysh get offended. What are you doing? This is, you know, our sacred house. What are you digging? Leave me alone. And he's digging away, digging away, digging away. So some of the Quraysh, they come and they get a little bit aggressive with him. Now at this moment, Abdul Matari realized, you know what? In this day and age, you need a big family. You need sons. That's when he realized, I've only got one son here, right? So he made a vow to Allah that day. He said, Ya Allah, if you ever give me like 10 sons, I'll sacrifice one for you. Right? He made this statement. Anyway, they didn't want to cause a fuss. He carried on digging. When he dug, 
he found a coping stone, a sign. They all saw it and they were shocked. He picked it up, he saw the two gold gazelles and the breast shield that the Jurum tribe had buried. Yeah, over three, four hundred years ago. He found it, dug it up, pulled it out and there was the water. Zamzam. The Quraysh came round and said, listen, seriously, mate, we're all part of the same family. We have rights to it. He goes, no chance. No chance. This is mine. The dream came to me. It didn't come to you. It came to me. It's mine. So big corn, big fight started. They agreed. Okay, if we go to a soothsayer, right, a witch, a sorcerer, and let her decide between us with the help of the gods, right? If whatever they say, will you agree? He said, fine, let's do it. So they all pack up. Now there's multiple tribes, a delegation of each of the tribes they go with Abdul Talib. They pack up, they go from Makkah. Guess where they're going? All the way to Acham near Rome. Long journey. Underestimate the journey and they're traveling. Water runs out. Right? So halfway through the journey in the desert, they're thirsty, they're going to die. They all stop. They've got no energy. Camels are running out. They can't survive, right? Even though they travel such a long period of time. Eventually they need water. So they all sat there. And then Abdul Matala said, this is no good. If we're all going to die here, the best thing to do is this. We don't want to die, all of us, rotting bodies on the desert. Yeah, We're all noblemen, we've got some honour. Every man dig your own grave. The first one that dies will kick him in the grave, will bury him. Right? At least that way, there'll only be one left. All the crows <laughs> will eat these body, but at least it will be better than you know, all of us being eaten up. So they all dug and they sat there. And then it occurred to him, he goes, this is crazy. What sort of men are we that we're waiting here for our death? He said, right, guys, we're not going to give up. We'll keep going. Everyone get up and just let's keep moving. The moment he got up onto his, or got onto his camel, the camel got up. Water started shooting off underneath the camel's foot. He ran to it. They drank the water. And then he called all the others who dispute with him as well. When they saw the water, then they realized this is what Allah subhanahu wa had provided. Yeah. So remember this saying, right? That even though these people are idol worshippers, Allah can even bring good through bad people. And that isn't to favor them. That is to prepare something else for us. So things that have happened in the past, you can't, you don't have the knowledge, you can't join the dots so easily. Something may happen to you in 30 years, may have already that chain reaction started 100 years ago. You understand? So here, when they saw this, they said, Abdul Masalib, you are the man. That dream came to you and today we were going to die and the water still came to you. We, we don't need to go to that woman. We have no dispute. Let's go back. Yeah, water is yours. So though he goes back, he has control of the water. Second event happens. SubhanAllah, he gets 10 kids. Right? First 10 are there. Now, just look at the children. Right? It's very important. Hardest. You know, you want Zubair. You want to know some of these. The main one you want to know is, you know, Hamza, Abu Talib, Abbas, Abu Lahab, Abdullah, the father of Muhammad These are his children. Okay? So now you know where all the connections coming from, right? So when we talked about, if you know the Sira and you know why Abu Lahab hated him so much, and amazingly, that was his uncle, right? That was his father's brother. So Abdul Talib now has them and he remembered his vow. 
to sacrifice one of his kids. So he calls all of his kids, right? He has 12, but by this time it's 10, right? Because he said the first 10. He calls all of his children and he said, will you help me fulfill my vow to the God? They said, yes, dad. You know, they love him. They said, he said, then what is it? He said, I have to sacrifice one of you. They're like, okay. Reluctantly, right? Because he's his father. So they went to the Kaaba. Now in the Kaaba, they got idols. And in the Kaaba, they got these divine arrows. And this is where they use the arrows to like choose between things like a roulette table, right? They got in there that is influenced by their gods. So in there, he takes arrows, does something to find out which son will be sacrificed. <coughs> and the sign comes on to the youngest one, Abdullah, right? The father of Muhammad. So he takes him outside. He takes him outside, puts him to the ground, puts his foot on his neck, takes a knife out to sacrifice him. And all of the Quraysh who are sitting there, in, even in Darul Nadwa, you know, the assembly, they see what's going on and they rush over to him. They go, what are you doing? He said, I made a promise to Allah. This is the ignorance of them, the ignorance of Jahliya. Allah never asked this for anyone, right? This is the ignorance of the, They make up these rules. They used to, because remember, in those days, they used to sacrifice their daughters. Ah, it's a big deal to sacrifice your son, but daughters, yo, no problem, you can kill them off, no issues. This is the jahli of these people. So they came rushing out. They said, what are you doing? And they said something very smart to him. They said, Abdul Muttalib, if you kill him now, under this pretense, you will begin a custom that we will not be able to keep up with. Right? You will keep up a custom that you will not keep up, that we will not be, keep, be able to do. Yeah? Which we feel like we will fail in worshipping God. If you start this, we don't do it. So he said, no, no, we're going to do this. So when they started debating, they said, look, the best thing to do is we know a wise man, yeah, near Medina or just past Medina. Let him make a decision. He has connections with the gods by the jinns. Yeah, he will help us make a decision that will release Abdullah. He said, okay. Abbas, when he was young, he was the first one to pull his brother out under the foot of his father. Pulled him out quickly. They take a journey and they go to see this soothsayer or this sorcerer, right? A male. They tell him about the situation. He said, I made a vow to God that I was going to kill one of my sons, right? Sacrifice one of my sons for Allah because he gave me 10 children. So the soothsayer said to him, come back tomorrow. I need to talk to the jinns and I'll give you the answer tomorrow. They come back and he said, right, this is what you're going to do. How do you decide, right? How do you decide how to pay blood with? They said, we do it with the camels. Right, we paved the blood with through the camels. So go back to Makkah, take the arrow, right, and I want you to spin the arrow. And every time it lands on Abdullah, I want you to end add ten camels. Keep spinning it until it lands on the camel, and that's the number you're going to sacrifice to release him. Gods are satisfied, right? So they go back to Makkah. They put Abdullah down. And they put the first 10 camels, they start with 10. Spin it, hits Abdullah, they add another 10. Spin it, hits Abdullah, add another 10. They spin it, puts Abdullah, add another 10, until they get to 100. When, they, when he spins it, and at 100 it hits the camels, they were like, thank God, 
right, we can sacrifice 100 cam. He goes, no, I want to be convinced, yeah, that this is not just luck. Could figure that out in the first few, right? But anyway, he spins it again, hits the camel again, hits it again, hits the camel again. So 100 then became the official number for the blood weight for one death. This was, this was now established as a rule, even the time of Muhammad So if one person was killed unjustly, and it did happen, at the time of Muhammad where a Muslim had killed another Muslim because of their past vendetta, right? Muhammad would offer 100 camels for his life, and 100 camels worth a lot. 100 camels worth a lot. So that was a famous story. Now had Abdullah, and Abdullah had to survive in order for... Muhammad to be born. See how Allah had planned everything, and in that, He kills several birds with one stone. Zakalakhir, inshallah, we'll speak to you next week.